Welcome to the NC4 Podcast. We exist to know Christ and make Him known. Discover the power of a connected life by listening to this message from God's Word. Morning once again, everyone. I'd like to start with a statement that will be as convicting for you as it probably is for me. Your relationship to God is no different than any other relationship. You simply don't take it seriously if you never take time to be alone and to talk. Just like any other person. And what I want to tell you is that that conversation is not a means to the relationship. The conversation is the relationship. Prayer is intimacy with God. And so, as I welcome you this morning, if you're joining us online, welcome. We're starting a new series today on how to pray. So, As we anticipate the conference, we thought it would be appropriate to do a short series on the topic of prayer. And so I've got to, I haven't come across a book or a piece of writing about prayer that doesn't begin with some sort of expression of, I'm not worthy to be writing to you about this. And so I'm in exactly that same place as I have the audacity to come up here and talk to you about how to pray this morning. And so I'll be very honest with you that I'm, I'm not really here as a teacher so much as a fellow student. And there's many of you whose faces I can see out here are much more uh, qualified to teach on this subject. And so what I want to very simply do in the course of this series is to sit down together at the feet of Jesus and learn from him how he taught us to pray. We sang it this morning. We've already sung the words of what we call the Lord's Prayer or the Our Father several times altogether if you were here for that song. And so we're going to learn from that very portion of Scripture where Jesus, in the middle of his great masterclass, the Sermon on the Mount, he teaches us how to pray. And so... We're going to be exploring it through the acronym P-R-A-Y, PRAY, and we're going, to help, we're going to see how that helps us internalize the structure of the Lord's Prayer, but it also helps us to learn the structure of what Jesus says every prayer should, should contain. So Jesus tells us that the anatomy of prayer is P-R-A-Y. It's to pause, to rejoice, to ask, and to yield. And so we're going to take a week on each of those. And this morning, we're focusing on pause. What we're going to see is that prayer begins with who we are. It begins with a sincere heart. We're going to see that Jesus models three three disciplines that form sincerity within our hearts. And they are solitude, silence, and stillness. So let's turn to Matthew 6, and we're going to be starting in verse 5. And this is where Jesus begins his teaching on prayer. And in in 
Luke's version, it actually says that the disciples had asked him, Lord, teach us how to pray. And so he begins in the more extended version in Matthew to tell us about the heart and the preparation for prayer. So we're going to begin reading in verse 5. Jesus says, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they'll be heard for their many words. Don't be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. So three times in this passage, Jesus makes the assumption that his students are praying. When you pray, when you pray, when you pray. He assumes that his students are praying, and they're praying regularly. And it's a safe assumption because, in fact, all religions pray in some form or another. In fact, when you look at the surveys, most people admit to praying regularly. More than once a day, even. Especially if they're fans of Philly sports. But here's it, most people pray. And whether it's at the most basic level of kind of a a message in a bottle that gets drifted out to some greater power, that's the essence of prayer. It's a personal response to a knowledge of the divine. And so the clearer your knowledge of that power, the better your prayer becomes. And so every religious teacher has instructed their followers on how to respond to the divine. And so it's natural for Jesus' students to ask him, teach us how to pray. That was their expectation of any rabbi, any religious teacher. And this is what we find Jesus doing. And as usual, he approaches it in a completely radical way. And the words, we're going to get into every phrase of the Lord's prayer in the coming weeks, but... These words are so familiar to us that they become opaque. They become so familiar that you you cease to see them. But Jesus is doing something absolutely radical as he gives us this anatomy of prayer. Because the first thing that Jesus tells us to do, he says, when you want to pray, the first thing you have to do is stop. The first thing we have to do is to pause our tendency to play the role. We have to pause our tendency to present a better version of ourselves than is reality. And this is where we immediately begin to see something that is quite different about Christian prayer. And I'm not talking, I'm not talking about prayer as Christians practice it. I'm talking about prayer as Christ tells us to practice it. And there's often quite a gap between those two things. But The first point about prayer is this, is that prayer is not so much something we do or say. Prayer is something we become. And we're going to explain that a little bit more. But the the essence of this is that it must be sincere. 
Jesus teaches us that true prayer must be sincere. Now, what do we mean by sincerity? I want to give you a quick definition that sincerity, when we're talking about prayer here, sincerity is responding to God from the reality of who we are. Not the hoped for reality of who we are, which is an unreality, but the actual reality, the, the, the realness of where you actually are, of who you actually are in this moment. Because I think every person has the tendency to want to project something that is kind of a better version of ourselves. We have this tendency to want to put our best face on, to make ourselves more acceptable, to make ourselves more put together so that we'll gain an audience, so that people will think we're worth listening to, that people will believe that we're worth accepting. And so I think we naturally do this with all the, you know, the people around us in the world. And much of the time, it's, it's innocuous. You know, it's kind of curating your Instagram feed, make sure no bad photos of you are on there. It's, you know, it's wearing your best suit for the job interview. And it's an attempt to say, like me, <laughs> accept me, right? And, and I'm not saying that that's all bad, but when it comes to prayer, Jesus says, enough with the image management, Enough with your personal PR. Press pause. Stop it. It's silly anyway to step in front of God's presence and and think that you can cover up, you know? You don't need to fix yourself up before you present yourself to God. And you know what? In In the context of world religions, that is a radical statement. And of course, as he goes into the prayer, you find out why it is, because God's our Father. You don't need to fix yourself up. Pray out of the reality of who you are and where you are. Because when we put on our best religious face, that religiosity, it actually becomes a barrier to true prayer. Because why? True prayer is intimacy with God. So when you put out this kind of like, when you want to put on your best face, whether it's, whether it's driven by humility, kind of a false humility, or whether it's driven by pride, it, it becomes a barrier. And I don't know if you, when I was writing this, I was thinking, you know, I don't know if you've ever been in a prayer meeting or a prayer circle, okay? And you're standing in a circle and there, you know, it's kind of like, it's either popcorn or it's creeping death where you know that your turn is coming. Those are the, those are the only two acceptable evangelical ways of praying. And so you know that your turn's coming, right? And you're so worried that you spend the whole time thinking of, oh man, okay, I'm going to pray this. I'm going to pray this. All right. I'm going to pray this, I'm going to pray this, and I'm going to end in a really strong Jesus name. And, you know, the crowd's going to go wild. And <laughs> you're spending so much time thinking about what you're going to pray that you suddenly realize, I haven't heard what anyone else has prayed. <laughs> I'm saying amen. I don't even know what I'm saying amen to. <laughs> and, <laughs> and then you deliver your prayer, right? You've worked yourself up. You deliver your prayer, and you're like... <gasps> Man, I blew it. That was a crappy prayer. <sighs> and you're giving yourself a grade, you know what I mean? And, like, and, and so Jesus is saying, chill out. 
worry about what your prayers seem like to other people. It's all about intimacy with me. And it's as if he's saying, when you're in that mindset, and again, you know, it's, it's normal, guys. <laughs> it's normal. When you're in that mindset, though, Jesus is saying, if you pray your best A-plus five-star prayer and everyone else thinks, wow, that guy really knows how to pray, that's your reward. And that's it. You've got your reward because that was what you were worried about in the first place. And so that's not what it's about. God is interested in you. God is a person and he desires our intimacy. And so there can be no true intimacy without vulnerability. Unless we have the courage to reveal the realness of where we are, you've barred yourself from true intimacy. And it's, there's this, I've mentioned Brene Brown before, but her, her talk, The Power of Vulnerability, it's really worth seeing because she talks about this thing that all of us want intimacy, we all want connection, but we put on our best face to make people like us and make us loved. And the irony is that if people fall in love with that mask, we've actually cut ourselves off from the thing that we wanted because they're loving the mask and they're not loving us, the real us. And it comes out of this fear that if people could see the real me, they wouldn't want to know me. And so vulnerability, everybody feels that. Vulnerability is required for intimacy, but vulnerability requires courage. It requires courage. And this is why I think that any good advice on prayer is equally good advice for relationships. Any good advice on prayer is equally good marriage or relationship advice. Because ultimately, we're talking about intimacy with God. And because God is a person, guess what? That advice applies to relationships with any other person. We all want connection. We all want intimacy. And so Jesus says, to enter the heart of prayer, we have to cut out the mask. We have to cut out the religiosity that keeps us from being intimate with God. And so what he does is he offers three tools to build intimacy. Three tools that shape sincerity in our hearts and therefore allow us to, to build intimacy with God. And so there's, there's three tools here, and these are solitude, silence, and stillness. Any of you who've done the Emotionally Healthy Spirituality or Relationships courses, you know all about these. And so we're discovering as a church, and I think the church at large in our part of the world is discovering the value of these things that we see practiced by Jesus. Crazy, huh? The thought that doing what Jesus did could actually have an impact on our lives. But Blaise Pascal once said, he was a mathematician, scientist, and brilliant Christian apologist. He said, all of humanity's problems stem from man's ability to sit, sorry, stem from man's inability to sit quietly in a room alone. All of humanity's problems stem from man's inability to sit quietly in a room alone. And I think the more I've meditated on that, the more profound I think that wisdom is. Because 
We've got this fear, this anxiety of, that drives us to constantly seek approval, constantly to accomplish something. And, and as we said, they, they become a blockage to intimacy. And so Jesus is telling us, we need to learn how to be alone. We need to learn how to be quiet in our souls. How to sit in stillness before God, because that is how we develop intimacy with God. And so Jesus says, if you want to practice sincerity, if you want to experience the intimacy that you were created for in God, the first and the primary tool is this. It's called solitude. Solitude is the best way to learn intimacy. The best way to learn intimacy is to be alone with God. So Jesus says, go into your room, shut the door. And all the introverts in the room are saying, amen. I knew Jesus was an introvert. <laughs> but there's something here, whether you're, you're naturally inclined to love to be with people or you love being alone, this is a discipline for all of us because it's not just about being alone, it's about being alone with God. And there's a big difference between just being alone on the couch and being alone and present to the Holy Spirit. And so the point of Christian solitude is that we retreat from the world in order to be present to God. And so the, the, when you look through the history of all the, the great teachers of, of prayer and Christian disciplines, they, they all pretty much agree that solitude and silence are the primary disciplines. They're the first ones. And I think they're so essential because they're the ones that you see so clearly embedded in Jesus's life. So Jesus, I mean, you could run through the whole Gospels and, and, and see this on every page or every other page. He began his ministry with what? He's baptized. The very first thing he does is he goes for 40 days alone into the wilderness. He spent the night alone in the hills before choosing the 12. So he's, he, he has time alone with the Father before he makes important decisions. When he heard the news about his cousin John being executed, he withdraws to a lonely place. So he's alone with God in his pain and his suffering. After feeding the 5,000, he dismisses the crowds and it says he goes up into the hills by himself. So after his greatest successes, he spends time alone with the Father. And before going to the cross, of course, he goes off alone in the garden to pray. And you can go on and on and on. This is very clearly Jesus's regular practice. And everyone that knew him saw it. And I think the, 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 the heart of this is that one of the things that you see in Jesus' life and his ministry is that there's constant expectations being put on him. His disciples have all sorts of expectations. His enemies have all sorts of expectations. The crowds have all kinds of expectations. At one point, they want to make him king. At another point, they're saying crucify him. Uh, they're, they're calling him a false teacher. They're calling him a, a drunkard and a glutton. They're, they're putting all of these labels and all of these expectations on him. And so all of these things, when he goes into the, into the, the desert, what are the things that the, the enemy tempts him with? He tempts him with... If you're really the son of God, do this. If you're really the son of... He's, he's attacking his identity. He's attacking his true self. And so I believe that one of the most powerful 
reasons for Jesus' solitude with the Father is to break off all those false selves, to free himself from all of those expectations that people were putting on him. And this is what I, I, I can summarize it this way. Solitude shapes intimacy by freeing us from appearances, or you could say pretenses. It shapes intimacy by freeing us from the fear or the control of people's expectations on us, our own expectations, our own projections of a less than fully true self to the people around us. So when you're alone, you don't have to worry about that stuff. And we need moments where we're not consumed by those expectations. If you're going to free yourself from all the false selves that want to impose on you, you're going to have to get time alone. Our lives depend on it. And it doesn't just mean, you know, I'm actually listening to a really fascinating book on the history of holidays, which is British for vacations. It's interesting. It's only been around about 100 years or so, and only maybe 50 or 60 years for the average person. And I'm not just talking about your annual vacation, if you have the the privilege to do that. Although those are wonderful. I love, you know, going to the beach and, and, and going to the mountains and all those things are, are wonderful times that we can set aside to God. But those are, they're not often enough. We need to find retreats daily. We need to find a time alone with God daily. Jesus says, go into your room and close the door. You can find your solitude right there. Find a place in your house or a place in your bedroom. Find a a chair. Find a desk. Find a bench in a particular park somewhere, whether it's near your work or it's near your house. I love, when I'm working here in the office, I love going to God's Acre a couple blocks away, and there's, there's a bench there, and it's peaceful, and I can be alone with God for a few minutes. We need retreats in regular life. And having that particular spot where you form a habit of going there and spending time with God, it's, it's, it's forming a habit of the holy in you. And so when you've got that spot that's kind of set apart and you go there, you can much more quickly enter into an awareness of God's presence. And so... All the parents in the room are saying, that sounds nice. (laughs) Especially if you've got young kids. I've got a couple young kids. That sounds nice. But it also sounds impossible in, in my life, in my daily reality. And so this is not about any kind of condemnation. There are different seasons of life where we find ourselves with more time or less time. But I want to encourage you that there is a way, no matter what your daily life looks like, there is a way to find pockets of solitude with God. Maybe it's not the three hours, you know, in the morning of of unbroken peace that you would long for in your heart, but maybe there's a moment on your morning commute. 
Maybe instead of turning on the podcast, I'm preaching to myself, maybe instead of turning on the podcast or turning on Spotify on your drive to work, you say, you know what? I'm going to just be still. As I drive, I'm going to be in the presence of God. For me, in, in, the, the, in the, the last few years of having little kids, my daily walk with the dog has become a, a time of solitude with God. But it still takes intentionality to not listen to the podcast or the audiobook or whatever, because I love those things. It takes an intentionality to say, okay, I'm going to stop, I'm going to press pause, and I'm going to be with God. And there's an example that is both daunting and inspiring. Susanna Wesley, all the moms in the room say, oh no, because I know what's coming. Susanna Wesley, all right? (laughs) I remember hearing this for the first time and it blew my mind, okay? This woman, wife of John Wesley, famous founder of, you know, father of Methodism, changed the world, okay? Incredible Christian figure, and yet at the same time, an absent father, to be honest, left his wife, which was not uncommon for the time, but I'm glad that it's not a common expectation today, left his wife to raise her 10 surviving children on her own. She gave birth to 19 kids, by the way. Nine of them died in infancy. But she, 10 kids survived, and she raised them basically on her own. So you can imagine the chaos of their home and how there would be absolutely nowhere to hide. And yet she became known as this this figure of prayer and the mother of Methodism. And I love her little trick, which was she would throw her apron over her head whenever she needed a moment with God. And that was her place of solitude. (laughs) And her kids knew, don't bother mom when she's covered with the apron. Okay? Now, so what I'm saying is, (laughs) this is so important in each of our lives that we can't let any excuse, we, we can't let false you know, condemnation or expectations come on us. It's about pausing. It's about being real before God. But there is an importance to say, no matter how I do it, I must find a way to spend a moment, maybe it's just a couple minutes, alone before God every day. And notice in you know, the example of, of Susanna Wesley, being alone before God doesn't necessarily mean that there's no one else around. Maybe you're taking the bus to work and that has to become your place of solitude. Maybe you're in the middle of your kids going crazy and yet you have to tune into God's presence and be present with him. And so you also have to notice that there is somewhat of a cost to others sometimes with this. And yet we have to allow each other the room to be able to do that. Okay, so there's a second tool that Jesus gives us to develop intimacy, and it goes hand in hand with solitude, and it's this, it's silence. Solitude and silence going hand in hand. They're they're almost, almost the same thing in the history of the church. But here's the definition that I want to give of the discipline of silence. Silence means Seeing, saying what needs to be said when it needs to be said. All right? So it's, it's, it, it's not just about never speaking. It's also not about complete lack of noise because it's actually quite difficult to find a place where there's a complete lack of noise unless you have an anechoic chamber, and those are quite expensive. 
The discipline of silence is not never speaking, it, it, but it might mean, might mean that for short periods. What it is, is the discipline of learning when and when not to speak. It's actually about the discipline of controlling our tongues. And here's the reason. You can't be intimate with a person as long as they're not seeing the real you, as long as you're not spending alone time with them. And you can't be intimate with a person as long as you're trying to manipulate them with your words. You might be alone. You might spend you know, weeks alone with a person, and yet the power of the tongue is such that you may not actually be forming intimacy. Just as solitude prepares us for intimacy by, by setting us free from the need of having the right appearances, the discipline of silence prepares us for intimacy by freeing us from the need to shape other people's perceptions with our words to make people do things or manipulate people through the use of our words. And so that's a very subtle thing. If you begin to pay attention to that in your life, you begin to see, wow, I just slightly changed that to make this person think a a certain thing or to make this person, you know, (laughs) how far away are you? Oh, I'm right. I'm just around the corner. I'm still on the highway. (laughs) Because I don't want to think, I don't want them to think that I'm a late person. You know, I am. But uh, the discipline of silence frees us from manipulating through words. And here's here's what's what's interesting. I think the amount of time that you can spend silently in a room with a person is an index of your intimacy with that person. If you're quite happy to sit in silence with a person for an extended time, you're probably pretty good friends. You're probably pretty good. You know intimate in your relationship. And so I think it's precisely because we're not intimate with people that we get really uncomfortable with silence and we feel the need to fill it with with words and, and distraction. And so a lot of times we're trying to make them feel a certain way by what we say. And I think we have the same tendency in prayer that we want to, deep down, we want our prayers to be a magic formula that will result in God doing something. And if we pray the right way, if we pray with the right emotion, if we pray enough, then God will have to act. And yes, there is a persistence to prayer. And yes, there is a dogged kind of like not going to let you go type of prayer. And that's essential. But there's a difference between that and between this subtle kind of manipulating form of prayer. And that's what Jesus is, is, is talking about here. He's saying, don't think that just because you, you pray loads and loads of words that God's going to do something. He is not persuaded by your eloquence or by your, your speech. He wants you. He wants to be intimate with you. And so as you begin to pray, stop. Be silent. Hold your tongue and be with him. Listen to him. And that takes a lot of discipline because we are not used to that. I think more than any, any generation that's ever been on the face of the earth, we have more noise, more information, more, more things to fill. You know, do you remember what it was like to be bored? Kids, you know, this is going back at least 20 years. <laughs> Stop. Be silent. And maybe it starts with just a, I, I mean, literally, when you go down to pray, Stop. 
and spend a minute. Maybe it just starts with one minute where there's nothing. You don't say anything. You're not praying. Well, you are praying, actually. But it's the prayer of being with God. And let it build. It's a minute or two. I remember the first time doing this in, in the Emotionally Healthy course, and it was so weird. It's like, oh my gosh, like two minutes is an eternity in silence with other people. It's a little better on your own. <laughs> but there's, there's some techniques that, that people have found helpful. Focusing on your breathing it slows you down. Breathing in his presence, breathing out all your anxiety, all that stuff. And a lot of people have it, they find it helpful to have a really short prayer just to focus their mind on God. Whether it's the, the Jesus prayer or whether you're just saying, come Holy Spirit, come Holy Spirit whispering it in, in, internally, and you can find a rhythm there. And if you're, if you're worried that, oh, Ian's going new age, well, don't. <laughs> Christians have been doing this for a couple thousand years, well before the Beatles made it cool. So don't worry about that, okay? Christians have been meditating for a very long time, and Jews before them. And so the difference here is, you know, everyone's talking about mindfulness. This is, this is very different than mindfulness. We're not emptying our mind. We're filling our mind with an, with an awareness of the presence of God. And so we're going to talk a lot more about different, different techniques, different methods that help us in, in these things. But we've got sincerity, and Jesus gives us solitude and silence as disciplines to shape sincerity within us. And then I think there's a third thing that we see in this, which is the discipline of stillness. And I see this in, in Jesus' last statement where he says, don't be like them for your father knows what you need before you ask him. And so what he's saying here, I think, is that we don't need to be driven, in, in our prayer, we don't need to be driven by the anxiety and the fear that causes us to constantly put on a show, constantly be aware of saying the right things to get the outcome that we want. We can just be real, we can be honest, and we can rest. We can be still in his presence. So stillness is this. Solitude and silence allow our hearts to rest. The great African theologian, St. Augustine, said, you have made us for yourself, O God, and our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. And so when we talk about stillness, it's about the, the restlessness fading away finding this stillness before God. Because God, in, in, in Psalm 46, he says, be still and know that I'm God. Stillness enables us to hear the voice of God. 1 Kings 19, it's the famous passage where Elijah, God tells Elijah the prophet, he says, go out into the hills, I want to speak to you. And so the first thing, a hurricane comes and God is not in the hurricane. And then an earthquake comes and God is not in the earthquake. And then a fire comes and God is not in the fire. And then it says, a still, small voice, like a whisper. And God was in the whisper. And so I think of our lives, I think of our, our, our ministry, how many times we're, we're, you know, we're praying, we're hoping God to bring the, the wind of his spirit and we're praying for God to shake the mountains and the, you know, we're praying for the fire of God to fall and all the while God is saying, come into my presence so that I can whisper to you. 
And yes, I'm going to do those things, but I want you to be in that quiet place with me first that I can speak to you, that I can shape you and make you sincere before me. Before we do anything, he wants us to pause and just be with him, to present our real selves and nothing else, nothing more, nothing less. And that in itself is prayer. It's intimacy with God. And I have to say in my own life, since encountering this through the through Emotionally Healthy course, this has been transformative in my life. And I, I was even thinking of this past week. I was having a whole lot of, you know, there's a lot of things to do. There's a new, whole new season of leadership over, over us. And, you know, a lot of potential anxiety, a lot of potential, you know, false projection And I used the jet lag of coming back from Prague to allow God to wake me up really early. I'm not a morning person. And just spend a lot more time with him. And I'll just, I mean, it's been transformative over the last eight years, but I want to tell you, even right now, I'm still experiencing just the peace, the the release of anxiety that just simply sitting with God can do. It's so simple. And yet it's a discipline that requires this, this habit to be formed. So to start, we must stop. Let's press pause. Thank you for listening to the NC4 podcast. For more info, visit our website at nc4.org. We believe in the power of a connected life. If you prayed to give your life to Jesus today, we'd love to help you walk it out together. Just text the word Jesus to 610-816-6062.